0: Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you to our praise team and instruments. You guys did a great job of leading us to the throne this morning. Well, we are cruising right along through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is basically one big sermon about Jesus. And we have the joy and the privilege of studying this book together on Sunday mornings in, excuse me, in 2021. And we hope that each of you will join us each and every week as we make our way along on this journey. Um, I love teaching straight through books of the Bible because in doing so, we get a true feel for the themes of the book, for the tenor of the book. And we get to see the author's train of thought and his logical progression as he moves from one concept to the next and builds upon the things that he's already said. And by the way, for these same reasons, I would encourage you to do your devotional reading in the same manner. Uh, Read straight through books of the Bible. There is great, great benefit in that. Now, on the subject of building from one passage to the next, last week, the author of Hebrews asked us a rhetorical, but a very powerful question in chapter two and verse three. And the question was this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And of course, he's referring there to the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, how can we escape the wrath of God for our sin if we turn our back on Jesus Christ and ignore, or even worse, reject what he did for us on the cross? And the answer is we can't. We won't. Salvation through Jesus is the only hope that we have. Well, that question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, remains very much in the foreground as we continue on today in chapter 2. The title of this morning's sermon is, Jesus was made lower than the angels to lift us to God. In today's text, the author of Hebrews continues to drive home this point that Jesus is the only hope that we have. We cannot trust in angels for our salvation. We certainly cannot trust in ourselves. We can only trust in Jesus who became one of us and tasted death in our place so that we might live with him forever. Let's begin to make our way through this text and we begin with verse 5 where we see yet another reference to angels. Already, this is the eighth time that angels are mentioned in the early part of this book. So let's read verse 5 and see what it has to say. The writer says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. We'll just pause right there and let's talk about this verse for a moment. Remember, the author of Hebrews is still making the case that we must not neglect the great salvation that is found in Jesus. And so all he's doing here in verse 5 is pointing out once again that salvation does not come through the angels. As you may recall from a couple weeks back, at the time this book was written, there was a sect of Jews living near Qumran on the Dead Sea who were worshiping angels. And apparently this group had some level of influence among the Hebrews, among the recipients of this letter. So whether it was this particular sect or some other bad influence, the author feels the need to repeat himself. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, we need to pay extra close attention. The author feels the need to repeat himself and make very clear to his readers and to us that we must keep angels in their proper place. As we've said in previous weeks, angels are servants of God whose job is to minister to the people of God. And we are very grateful for them. We're grateful for their role in the kingdom, but they are not to be worshipped. Along these lines, the author makes a simple yet important statement in verse 5. God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. Um, In other words, angels will not be rulers over the new heaven and new earth. That role belongs to Jesus and it belongs to him alone. He is the one who will sit on the throne of glory and rule and reign over the kingdom of God forever. Matthew 25 says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It doesn't say the angels will sit on the throne. Jesus will sit on the throne and he shares his glory with no one no human, and not even the angels of heaven. To follow the writer's train of thought, if God the Father has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, but rather in subjection to Jesus, then it is Jesus that we should worship. And it is Jesus that we should trust for salvation. Well, hopefully everyone has that down pat now, right? We've said that many different ways these last few weeks. Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't trust in angels for our salvation. We trust in Jesus. We don't worship angels. We don't pray to angels. We only worship and pray to Jesus. He is the one on the throne. All right, now we make a little transition because not only should we not trust in angels for our salvation, but we really shouldn't trust in ourselves either. And to make this point, the writer of Hebrews quotes from a familiar psalm. To be specific, it is Psalm 8. And it may be in italics in your Bible to show that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. So let's read verses 6 through 8, which again, pretty much verbatim is from Psalm 8. The writer says, But one testified in a certain place, speaking of King David in the Psalms, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And that's the end of the quote. And then the writer of Hebrews says. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Clear as mud? (laughs) Let's talk about it a little bit. We'll explain what's going on here. As we said, the author of Hebrews is making the case here that we as humans really shouldn't trust in ourselves for salvation either. And I'll come back to that thought here in just a moment. So kind of hold on to that. But first, sometimes in secular culture, we hear this idea floated about that mankind has the ability to save ourselves. uh, If we'll just come together. If we'll just unite, we can save ourselves. When I was a kid in the 80s, there was an extremely uh, popular song that a bunch of famous musical artists and celebrities came together and sang. When I think about it, I always think about Stevie Wonders sitting there playing the piano. And it was called We Are the World. And in fact, I sang that song with my third grade class for an elementary choir concert. The words of the chorus went something like this. I'm not gonna sing it for you. I'm just gonna say it. And I'm not gonna do Stevie Wonder when I do it either. We are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a better day, so let's start giving. I see some smiles out there. There's a choice we're making. What's the next line? We're saving our own lives. It's true, we'll make a better day, just you and me. It was a feel-good song, and its purpose was to get people to love each other and to get along with each other. And though it's perhaps well-intentioned, I would submit that its premise is completely mistaken. We cannot save ourselves. and let me explain what I mean, and, and again, track with me here for just a moment. When you look at Psalm 8, as quoted here by the writer of Hebrews, it's a psalm that on the surface speaks to God's love for mankind. It says that God is mindful of us, that he takes care of us. What wonderful words those are. It is also a psalm that speaks to man's place of honor in God's economy. Mankind is the crowning work of God's creation. We are the image bearers of God, crowned with glory and honor, made just a little bit lower than the angels. No other creature in all of creation can make that claim, only man. Finally, Psalm 8 speaks to mankind's role in creation as its God-appointed stewards. It says that God has put us over The work of his hands. That would include plants and animals and everything in the world. And that all of those things, it says, are in subjection to us, to mankind. This goes back, of course, to what we call the dominion mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Sarah referenced it this morning. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the Earth and subdue it, and have dominion, have authority over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves, every living thing that moves upon the Earth. And I think most of us get that. We understand that God has given us that role. He's made mankind stewards over the creation. Now, with that being said, let me ask you a question. How good a job have we done of that? When you look around the world, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that we really haven't done a very good job. And I'm not just talking about taking care of the environment, although that's part of the mandate and that's important. But I'm really talking about the world as a whole. Adam and Eve sinned. And with that first sin, the world fell under a curse. And now because of that, when we look around the world, we see hatred and division and Murder and greed and racism and sexual perversions and abortion and disease and war and death. And the list could go on and on and on. This world is a messed up place. Even nature itself feels the ramifications of the fall. We look at the creation and we see hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires and earthquakes and on and on. All of these things ultimately were brought about because man chose to sin and rebel against God. To a large degree, we have failed in our dominion mandate to be godly stewards over the world. Think of it this way. Those of you with small children, if you left your kids at home with a babysitter for the night, and you came back and your house was torn apart and a couple windows were broken and the dog had tore the stuffing out of the couch and there'd been a fire in the kitchen and your kids are sitting there half naked with chocolate sauce all over them. You'd probably lose confidence in that particular babysitter. They were not a very good steward of your kids and your home. And I would submit that as a human race, that's the equivalent of what we've done to the world. God ordained us to be stewards over this world and we have made a mess of it. Verse 8 says that God put all under subjection to us. Now, the actual pronoun there that's used is him, but it's not talking about Jesus there. It's a lowercase him. It's talking about him as in mankind. God left nothing in all the creation that was not put under subjection to us. But the key is really what it says next. It says, but we do not yet see all things put under him, put under mankind. In other words, when we look around the world today, we don't see things as God intended in the beginning. We don't see things as they should be. We don't see man bringing the creation into godly subjection under him. Rather, we see mankind shirking his duties as the caretaker of creation. We see a world that is completely wrecked and dysfunctional. Now, it's still beautiful for sure. We still see the fingerprints of God upon it, but it's a broken world. Folks, here's the bottom line, all right? Here's where I'm going with all this. If we can't even take care of the world around us, what on earth makes us think that we're capable of saving ourselves? That's utter foolishness. Mankind has no power to save our race, none. None. If we can't trust in angels for our salvation, and we definitely can't trust in ourselves, I think we see that pretty clearly, then the question is, who can we trust? Where are we to turn? I'm glad you asked. Look with me if you would at verse 9. But we see who? Jesus. who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, by my count, there are four important truths stated about Jesus in this verse. And so let's just take them one by one. First, it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Now, doesn't that contradict everything that we've said up to this point? We've said multiple times in this series, including today, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that they worship him, that they do his bidding. Why then does the author now say that Jesus was made lower than the angels? Here's what that means. Verse 9 is referring specifically to Jesus's incarnation, his becoming human. Because remember, Psalm 8 said that mankind was created just a little lower than the angels. And what did Jesus become at his birth? A man. He became human. Now, he never stopped being God. He had a dual nature. He was 100% God, he was 100% man. But for that period of time that Jesus walked the earth, in his humanity, there is a sense in which he did become lower than the angels. And he did this voluntarily, he did it of his own accord. Theologians call this the kenosis, which is Greek for the emptying. Drawing from Philippians 2, where it says Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. When Jesus came to this earth, he emptied himself of the rights and of the recognition that he deserved as the son of God. And he became one of us, a lowly human, flesh and bone. The one who created the angels was made lower than them. But why? That's the second truth that we read in verse 9. Why was Jesus made lower than the angels? What does it say? For the suffering of death. Jesus lowered himself to come to this world. Yes, to show us how to live. But even more importantly, to suffer and die In our place for our sin at the cross. The Roman soldiers mocked and ridiculed him. They spit on him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and then they put nails through his hands and feet and hung him upon that wretched tree that we sang about this morning. But that wretched tree is also precious to us who believe because we understand that the cross is where our salvation was won. You see, as Jesus hung on that cross, he bore our sin on his shoulders to the point that he actually became sin, the scripture says. And the sky turned black and the earth shook as a righteous God poured out his wrath on his own son because he is a holy and just God who must punish sin. But as Jesus took his last breath, he cried out, it is finished. And by that, he meant that his mission was was accomplished. He had come to earth. He had lowered himself beneath the angels to suffer and die that you and I might be reconciled to God. That's exactly what he did. This is good news for you and for me because when we accept the sacrifice of Jesus as the payment for our sin and God looks upon us, he no longer sees our sins, but rather he sees the righteousness of his son and when he sees his son, we know that he is well-pleased. 2 Corinthians 5 says he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sproul says at the cross, a wonderful transaction took place. We gave Jesus our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Aren't you glad that Jesus lowered himself to come to this earth and gave himself For us, Jesus was made lower than the angels so that we might be lifted to God. The third truth that we see about Jesus in verse 9 is that he is crowned with glory and honor. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, because he gave himself on the cross, because he rose from the dead, he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords, crowned with glory and honor forever and ever. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here's the deal. You can either receive him as king of your life now, of your own accord, or you can acknowledge him as king at his return when it's too late for your soul. But rest assured, you will bow the knee To King Jesus. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king for all eternity. Have you acknowledged Jesus as the king of your life? If not, you need to do that before it's too late. The fourth truth that we see about Jesus in verse 9 is that it says he tasted death for everyone. Very simply, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for everyone who has ever lived, who has ever walked the earth. 1 John chapter two and verse two says that Jesus is the propitiation or the appeasement for our sins and not for ours only, it says, but also for the whole world. We sing a hymn with the lyrics, there is room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there is still room for one. There is room at the cross for you. And that is so true. But listen, this is very important. While Jesus tasted death for everyone, while his sacrifice is sufficient for all, it is only efficient, it is only effective for those who turn to him in repentance and in faith. In other words, while Jesus tasted death for everyone, there is a response that is required on our behalf. The righteousness of Jesus is not automatically credited to our account. There is something that we must do and indeed can only do by the grace of God. The Bible says that we must repent of our sin and believe in the gospel, calling upon the name of Jesus. And if we do that, God will hear us. And he will grant us eternal life. Praise Jesus that he came to taste death for us in our stead. But that wasn't the end, was it? As we know, death did not defeat him. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave, proving that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. In closing, I would ask you today, who or what are you trusting For your salvation. Don't trust in angels. Don't trust in yourself. And your own goodness. In fact, while we're at it, just don't trust in anything this world has to offer. It's not going to work. Trust in Christ. And in him alone. He is the one. Made lower than the angels. That he might lift us to God. If you're ready to follow Jesus or make any other decision for Christ today, we're going to give you a time to respond. We're going to have a come forward invitation today. I think that we can do this responsibly. If you need to come forward, if you have a mask, it would be great and courteous if you put it on. If you don't, don't worry about it. But if you're here today and you need to come and you need to pray, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Christ or follow the Lord in baptism or unite with this church in membership, Please do that now. Don't wait. Let me pray for us. And then when I pray, we'll have our song of response. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your son. Lord, it boggles our mind that Jesus would lower himself below the angels that he created so that he could become one of us and lift us up to you. Help us never take that for granted. I pray if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith in you, that they would do that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.